0: The sergeant was riding me around the base and he was, because I had these guys that I was, I was over these guys, man. I had this, this crew of guys that were my guys, man. We all trained together and they cross-trained us through all branches of the military so that we could function with everyone worldwide. They took these 260 guys and they spread them out on the, all the top bases around the world. We had our, we bumped the CIA for the satellite. The next satellite that went up pissed the CIA right off. But we got the next satellite so we could communicate and do anything we needed to around the world. And the sergeant's driving me around base and there's this key ring about this big and I've got about a thousand keys on the damn thing. He's going through every top security building and every lock and everything and he's telling me all about this stuff. And we get down to one last key and I said, well sergeant, what is this key for? Oh, that? That's the liquor warehouse doing, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to make sure that's secured tonight. <laughs> roll right over there and check that puppy out. (laughs) Made a copy of that one. (laughs) Kept that with me, man. Yeah, I did. I never paid for liquor the whole time I was in the military. It was absolutely insane. There were a lot of things that went on in the military during those years that they still don't want the public to know about, and I had to sign a disclosure agreement on that. But there's some things that they have let out that I can talk about, And one of them was, I don't know if you might remember, Oliver North had a little thing going with the Contras down in South America at one time. And that was the CIA's little game they had going down there. And uh, Congress, uh, there was a shift in political view, and Congress cut off Oliver North's fundings. And Oliver North was an army lieutenant who had this thing going on with the CIA and this group of paramilitary people out in South America. And Congress cut off his funding and they still, the CIA still wanted a little war go on, and they were out of money. So, what they did was Oliver North didn't, the countries didn't have any money, but what they had was cocaine labs all over the jungle. So, the CIA developed a little thing called Air America. They bought planes and wrote Air America on them, and they would fly, you know, people all around, doctors and and nurses and stuff all over South America and under the guise of humanitarian aid, and while these people were working two or three days in these jungle environments with these people doing medical stuff, CIA was loading up the planes with cocaine and flying it out, and what they were doing is they were flying it from South America to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, refueling and flying it up to Rock Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio where I was and it was my job to unload this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You know, life gets interesting when you've got the Kila Liquor Warehouse and a C-130 load of cocaine. And they're telling you there's no orders or paperwork on this. This this doesn't happen, this isn't happening, and you're in your barracks asleep. And I'm going, right. (laughs) Okay, sir. And. We were loading this stuff up in U-Haul trucks, and it took five U-Haul trucks, big ones, to unload a C-130 of kilos of cocaine, uncut. And you can't put a damaged product <laughs> in a U-Haul truck, because someone may find out you know, that it's not just some sort of powder, it's cocaine. So uh, everyone that got broke while unloading the plane I just had a duffel bag sitting there, and I'd wind up with 10, 15, 20 keys. Twice a month. Twice a month. And uh, just fine with everybody else. They'd go sell the drugs to to the mafia in downtown Dayton, and they'd go buy all the guns and weapons and ammunition and medical supplies they needed, and they'd come back the next night, and we'd load up the plane, and they'd fly it off again. So there was absolutely no way to stay clean and sober in the military. Not for me. It was an absolute impossibility. And it, it, by the way, if this never happens, you know. And I'm going, "Oh my God!" So and the insanity ensues. This—I was in there for three years doing this stuff, and uh, they had us doing other things that uh, I found my conscience could not endure. You. Don't kill Americans on American soil with American troops for political and monetary gain. And on that I drew a line because I couldn't drink it away. I couldn't sleep. It got to a point to where the actions that they were having me do, my men carry out, were morally incorrect. There's one thing to go to do something for God in your country and there's quite another thing to go do the wrong thing for money and for politics. So the shit hit the fan one day, and uh, I wound up in front of a special board of review, and they had to let the media in because it was such a big problem, and I was ordered to lie about the things that my crew had been doing. It was called Special Black Ops, And I didn't lie. I had the opportunity to stand before a room of 100 people and 15 reporters and tell the absolute truth. And nobody could stop me because uh, the media was there. And they were were writing everything down and recording. I told the truth. And I was uh, told the next day. I had orders to Aviano Air Force Base in Italy. And I called a friend of mine that night who was one of my co-workers in Aviano Air Force Base in Italy, and I told him, check out the number of these orders and find out what's going on with that person. And he did. He called me back in 30 minutes, he said, well, the guy that's carrying these numbers for these orders is to die in an automobile accident two weeks after his feet hit the ground here. he said, why, who's, what's up with these orders? And I said, they're my orders. He went, oh, shit. He said, what's your other option? And I said, dishonorable discharge. He said, if you want to live, you got to take the discharge because it's my orders to get rid of the guy who's carrying these orders. And I said, I understand, you're doing your job. He goes, yeah, I hate it, buddy, but that's the orders. You follow orders. So <clears throat> I took the dishonorable and I have paid for that for the rest of my life. I have no benefits or, of any kind or anything, but uh, it helped get me to where I am now. It takes whatever it took to get you where you got to. I had fathered a child when I was in the military, but I was a, a, at the time I'm on cocaine. I was also doing heroin. I was drinking heavily and I was not fathered material at all. And the lady gave the child up for adoption and I have never seen or heard from him. I have no idea if the boy is still alive. And that is something that is on my ninth step amends that I am willing to make an amends should God put me and him together. You know, but there's some things that you just trust God with and you leave it at that. And that is really where you have to do. I mean, for me, I have to just trust God with things and let them go. And it will work the way that God just wants them to do. Uh, I created a lot of havoc when I got out of the military because they took a homicidal and a suicidal person and turned him loose on the streets. Now remember, all this guilt, shame, remorse, and rage has been building all this time. And when I hit the streets in Atlanta, I could put a bullet in you without flinching and didn't bother me at all because remember the emotions shut down a long time ago. Long time ago, didn't care. Uh, Even the people that grew up with me around here knew me. They knew that uh, if I walked up to you, when I got off of that Harley, I used to ride Harleys a lot. When I climbed off that Harley and walked up to you in a bar or out in the open, you never knew whether I was going to give you a handshake, pull out a gun and shoot you, or cut you with a knife. It's just how whatever crossed my mind, it's what I did. It was instant reaction. I never stopped and thought about anything. I was taught by the military. The thought comes through, you react. No matter what it is, you do it. And it was always about kill. That was just it. They program you, that's the way you are. And they didn't deprogram me when they threw me back out on the streets. So they turned this this thing loose on society. I rode around here and terrorized this place in the Atlanta metro area for many, many years. And uh, <laughs> they decided that one day the... Cobb County judge sent the sheriff out of my apartment and woke me up told me to go to his chambers I stepped in the Marietta judge's chambers and I was expecting to see the one judge and I know I ain't done nothing on the not know he wants to see me and uh, there's five judges sitting in there and they're all from the Atlanta metro area and they said we want you to take a vacation and I said oh really they said yeah we want you to leave the state of Georgia for two years because we're tired of you and they started reading off lists of offenses in this county beating up the cops tearing up the cars running crazy on that harley if a red light turned red in my direction i'd just pull out a 38 and shoot the light out and go on people wrecked behind me i didn't care it was just plain insane i just ran loose So they decided that I need to take a vacation and leave the state for two years. And uh, I said, well, what's the other option? What if I don't? And they said, we are prepared to lock you up in the Georgia Regional Mental Institution for an indefinite period of stay. And I said, when did you want me to leave? (laughs) (laughs) They said, you've got two days. Well then one day I sold what I had, jumped on the Harley, took off up to Virginia to a friend's who was in the Navy SEALs and uh, proceeded to party for two years in Virginia Beach with Navy SEALs. (laughs) We go in, tear up a bar, they asked you to leave, we leave, we go tear up another bar. I mean, it was just fun. This is the lifestyle that I had. It was just plain insane. Drinking the whole time, anything and everything. Anything went, didn't matter. There was a time when I hooked up with some people once I got back to Georgia where uh, I had a nice place to stay. I had fast automobiles, nice bikes, good-looking women who were models out of Atlanta Modeling Agency, escorted me around all the time, and I had, any given day, $60,000 is what I spent every night, just 60 grand, that was pocket change, every night, for two years. And I remember standing on the balcony at River Bend, looking down there at a party that was going on in, in my place there and I'm looking down at my little fast Cougar car and my Harley down there and this good looking woman by my side and I'm standing there with a fifth Jack Daniels and the 38. Wonder which one I want to take first. Cause I got all the money, I got all the stuff, I got everything and I feel like shit on the inside. Cause I'm wondering why I have no ability to love this person beside me. It was just a person, it was just another thing. And I'm going. This ain't right, man. There's something wrong with you. And there it was. So <clears throat> things continued on, and I, I I got worse and worse and worse, and lost all the stuff three times over. There toward the end, my sister was having me arrested and put in Georgia Regional Mental Institution. And uh, three months before I came to AA, I was in Georgia Regional, and I, I came to that morning in a mental institution in a straitjacket sitting in a padded room going, oh my God, is this what's going to be going on for the rest of my life in and out of mental institutions now? What, 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 what happened? What happened? And uh, it, was, it was devastating. I managed to, as a good alcoholic, and insane person, I talked my way out of there in 24 hours. (laughs) It was amazing. They thought I was perfectly sane, you know. By the time I left there, it was absolutely amazing. I wanna back up a couple of years and tell you about a very special event that occurred in my life which ties all of this together for me. As you can see by the way I dress, the way I talk a lot of the times, that I'm Scottish, Irish, and Cherokee. I right. <laughs> thought I could drink, too. <laughs> 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 what the hell? It's a thinking problem, right? Yeah. So I believe in a, in a Native American point of view of the great spirit that moves through everything and that God lives in everything. And uh, <laughs> I was working for a company in 1974, October the 18th. It was 1230 in the day. We were putting in the first fiber optic cable that was running in the state of Georgia at... Uh, Raza Road in Soaks Creek. One of the ditch jacks that were holding the ditch back failed and it caved in on me. There was two and a half tons of dirt It broke 22 bones in two seconds. Uh, the only thing sticking out of the ground was that much of the right hand and from my jaw up, just my head. And I remembered I could not breathe and then the sound stopped. And I floated back up out of my body, and I'm watching all these guys run around this head and this hand trying to dig it out. And I thought to myself, that's me down there, and this is me up here. And then it crossed my mind, I guess, that, wow, you can still think. The spiritual self can still form idea and opinion, and I'm going, well, this is different. different. And I'm watching me down there and them digging me out. And it's like I turned and looked up into the sky and everything went to a thousand points of light. And I started flying up through this tunnel really fast. And my dad.